Well, before I do anything else, I just want to uh, give a hand of appreciation to all our great Pork Fest volunteers. They've been working so hard. Pork Rangers, Free Aid, Registration, Pork Info, Porcupines, and all the organizers. They've done a, a really wonderful job. A great example of the kind of uh, unsung heroes we have in the Liberty Movement here who uh, pitch in and help out uh, without needing notoriety. So I want to know, how many of you are here from out of state? Okay, all right, probably at least half of you. And how many of you uh, from out of state are considering moving here? All right, round of applause for you guys. <laughs> And so if there's any way that uh, we can help you make that decision, uh, absolutely come up and, and chat with me. And, and there are a number of people in this room whom I can see, whom I've known for many years, uh, and who've been in the state for many years and are very active, uh, who I'm sure also would be uh, willing to speak with you. 20 years and three days ago, I looked it up, <laughs> an event was kicking off right here at Rogers Campground uh, called Escape to New Hampshire. Uh, today, some people call it Porkfest Zero. I wasn't here. I was 2,000 miles basically due west from here in Missoula, Montana for something called the Grand Western Conference. You see, the Free State Project was choosing its new home state and the discussion at, the t at that time had settled quickly around New Hampshire in the east, and Wyoming and Montana in the west. Our voting system, a form of ranked choice voting called the Condorcet method, uh, made vote splitting impossible. So as a result, the western state advocates uh, actually worked together and put that conference together. So these two events were meant to showcase the candidate states before voting was about to begin on uh, among the first 5,000 people who had signed up for this grand American experiment. Now to avoid the appearance of bias, I, as the, uh, as the FSP president at the time, went out to Montana and our vice president came here to New Hampshire. The escape was organized by, uh, by two people who uh, are not here today, at least to my knowledge, uh, Michelle Dumas and Dave Minson. Uh, Michelle and her husband Jim are still around in the state. Um, and you should look up Michelle if you're on the job market and need a resume refresh. Uh, she, uh, she's good, I know, because she helped me out. Uh, Dave, some of you here know Dave. He's in the Philippines now and living his best life. Uh, and I don't begrudge him a second of it. He loved his time here, exerted his fullest practical effort, and made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. The biggest lesson I think we can take from that event and, and that whole summer 20 summers ago, uh, is that the Free State Project is such a good idea that it can outlast all the mistakes and the foolishness of its leaders and its advocates. <laughs> Boy, did we make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I'm going to give you a flavor of a few of them. Uh, let's start with the vote itself. There was such a hullabaloo online in the email groups and on the online forums, you know, this was 2003, um, that about making sure the vote was secure, that what we decided to do was to require you when you voted and sent your vote to this uh, third party vendor run by a, a, a libertarian who was kind of monitoring and verifying the vote, 
you had to send in photo identification and get your ballot notarized. <laughs> yes, we did that. It didn't have to be government photo ID, just some photo ID. Then there was a snafu with the ballot mailing, which was my fault. <laughs> and some people got their ballots four to five weeks late. <laughs> so we extended the voting period. Um, still, over half of all signers ended up participating, uh, jumping through all the hoops. To boost turnout, we said that everyone who didn't vote was going to be removed from our rolls. <laughs> and so by the time the state was chosen and we removed everyone who'd opted out of New Hampshire and everyone who didn't vote, uh, that was October 1, 2003 when we announced the state, uh, we were down to about 2,200 signers. And so that's where we were. Today we're 10x that, well, over 10x that, uh, when, we, when we stopped collecting signers. But that's where we were and we put ourselves in that position. Then we decided to give an exclusive preview of the state vote results to a British paper called The Guardian. <laughs> Why did we give this exclusive to a uh, left-wing rag? <laughs> because I was 26 years old, I didn't know it was a left-wing rag, and in general I didn't know what I was doing. They, uh, they broke the embargo and ran a story several hours before our New York City press conference. Uh, they also misquoted me and said uh, that I wanted New Hampshire to be a more autocratic state, when what I actually said was a more autonomous state. <laughs> they issued a correction afterward, but that hasn't stopped the New Hampshire Democratic establishment from repeatedly using the incorrect quotation and attributing it to me for years afterward. Uh, speaking of the New Hampshire Dems, they issued a press release on the day of the state announcement decrying us as anti-family and saying we wanted to abolish public schools and legalize prostitution. Well, swap a... <laughs> Swap abolish for privatize, and at least that would have been accurate, that last part. Uh, but the Dem leadership in the state never gave us a chance, and they, and they never have since. And it's been their own goal, really. It's been their loss. Uh, never stopped the very first Free State Project mover uh, to win office from running and winning as a Democrat in November 2006. Over the years, the establishment leadership of that party has continued to push away libertarians, and they've continued to lose their choice. But libertarians belong here in New Hampshire. This is the only state during our state vote where the governor at that time, Craig Benson, um, whom some of us know, I see John Babiars back there, is, who played a big role in this, he lobbied us to choose New Hampshire and actually signed up as a friend of the Free State Project. In the spring of 2004, I went to the home of Jim and Michelle Dumas for a house party and met with many of the so-called pre-staters who were here uh, before any of the Free Staters arrived and helped get New Hampshire selected by the voters. Among them was a man named Don Gorman, uh, godfather of the libertarian movement here in New Hampshire, as I like to say, uh, who'd been elected to the State House on the Libertarian Party label in the 1990s. These people were the founders of the New Hampshire Liberty Alliance, which is still around, still active, and the, really the first yeah, give it up for the NHLA. Liberty Dinner coming up next month. Should be good. I'm emceeing. We've got Jim Bovard. 
Uh, okay, and the, the NHLA, really what's distinctive about the NHLA is it's the first nonpartisan organization uh, dedicated to the political nuts and bolts of creating a free society. Don was very concerned that the people moving to New Hampshire make common cause with the people already here. And I remember his, him talking to me about how we should reach out to business people especially, how we could help them deal with legal and reg regulatory barriers. Neighborly, productive, tolerant, that was the kind of person that he wanted and the kind of person that I wanted to be in New Hampshire. Locals were to take the lead, especially at first, and newcomers would support. We were the cavalry coming over the hill to help them out. And now we're here. New Hampshire belongs to the people of freedom. We've been here since the 1700s. The American Revolution, or more properly, the American Secession, started here in December 1774. Just because no blood was shed at Fort William and Mary doesn't mean Lexington and Concord get that honor. We were the first state to constitute ourselves as an independent country in January 1776. We adopted a constitution well before the U.S. Constitution, proclaiming that we are a free and independent state with the authority to delegate powers to the Federal Congress or to withhold those powers. Our Constitution proclaims as well that the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power is slavish and absurd, and therefore citizens have a right to revolution. We're one of the few states, even in the North, never to have had laws disenfranchising free blacks or authorizing segregated public schools. Local lore says that the governor of New Hampshire even helped one of George Washington's slaves escape when Washington was on a visit here. The Republican Party was founded here to oppose slavery. Yes, we had problems with racism like everywhere else. We had problems with government overreach and corruption uh, like everywhere else, and we still do. But making allowances for cultural change, there's a libertarian through line running from the 1700s, from the foundation of New Hampshire as a sovereign state until the present. In the 20th century, of course, we never adopted a general income or sales tax leading to the New Hampshire advantage, our low tax growth model. We were Ronald Reagan's best state east of the Mississippi in 1980 and 1984. Reagan wasn't a libertarian, but he appreciated libertarianism, especially on economic issues. Today, our combination of social toleration and free markets has made us the number one state among all 50 for freedom. Yes, we belong here. So now that more and more freedom-minded people are moving to New Hampshire every year, it's time to take stock of where we are and where we're going. So I thought it would be fun to revisit some predictions I made eight years ago, right here in this pavilion uh, at the start of Porkfest. I gave a talk, and uh, I'm going to make myself accountable for these predictions right now. <laughs> All right, so I compiled some statistical evidence and ran some regressions, and anyway, I came up <laughs> with a forecast of what we could achieve in New Hampshire if we got 6,000 freedom lovers to move here. 
And I said that based on my research, I would expect that by 2035, 20 years from when I was speaking, we should expect to see a 100-point increase in New Hampshire's freedom score based on the Freedom of the 50 States Index um, at, uh, that's produced by the Cato Institute. You can find it at freedomofthe50states.org. 50 All right, so now Will Ruger and I are hard at work on the new edition of Freedom in the 50 States. Yes, there will be a new edition late this year. Um, and that will cover up to the beginning of this year. But right now, all we have is up to the beginning of 2020. So that's five years from when I made that prediction, or four and a half. So I looked it up. From 2015 to 2020, our freedom score increased by 20 points. So at that rate, by 2035, our freedom score would have increased by 80 points. But I think that rate is going to go up. We've had a lot more movers since 2020. In fact, the rate of moving has gone up. And there's a bit of a lag between the time when you move here and the time you start to have a big impact on state policy. So we're actually on track to fulfill my prediction. So now in case you weren't there or don't remember, let me tell you what a 100-point increase in freedom would look like. And this is just to give you a sense of the scale of the changes that we should expect to accomplish if we continue doing our jobs. Number one, lowest tax burden in the country, 7.5% of income, okay? That's what we should have. We should cut government debt in half. We should cut government employment in half. We should get constitutional carry. Oh wait, we have that now. <laughs> You're going to see there are a few of these that I predicted we would get that we've gotten already. We should get legal weed. And in fact, since I, I spoke, we got medical and, and decrim. Uh, we should have no more uh, police checkpoints. No more sobriety checkpoints. Uh, we should have legal prostitution. We should have complete deregulation of private and home schools. We should abolish civil asset forfeiture. And in fact, since I said that, uh, we've gone halfway there. I don't see Dan McGuire in the room, uh, but he wrote the bill that now requires a criminal conviction before civil asset forfeiture. <laughs> Measurable impact, folks, and it just continues. We should end up by 2035 with the lowest incarceration rate in the US with no more adults arrested for victimless crimes at all. <laughs> How about no more smoking bans on private property? Right? Let the property owner decide. We're going to compensate landowners for regulatory takings of their property rights. We're going to end exclusionary zoning. Uh, and in fact, that's an area where we have improved significantly, and I'll give you a little bit of details on that. Uh, we still have a, a good way to go. No more mandatory workers' compensation coverage. Uh, opt out of Obamacare somehow. <laughs> that's in there. Uh, no more mandated benefits or price controls in private health insurance. And most occupational licensing. That is something that we should expect to achieve. And in fact, we got rid of four more this just this year. Uh, and finally, I had on the list, repeal certificate of need for hospitals, and we did that. So. 
So that laundry list gives you a sense of what we should expect to accomplish, the scale of it. Now the details are, are going to differ. Uh, some of these will be harder to do than others. Uh, and we're going to get wins in unexpected places too. So we could do more than this. And in fact, I didn't even have education freedom accounts on this list because the concept didn't exist. Um, but then the concept was invented and we did that uh, since then. Now just since early 2020, when the Freedom in the 50 States data closed, we've done a fair bit. We've established and expanded education freedom accounts. We've uh, significantly cut the interest and dividends tax and put it on a course to abolition within two years. We've cut property taxes. We've cut the business enterprise tax. We've cut the business profits tax. Are you seeing a theme? <laughs> we cut the rooms and meals tax. <laughs> we cut state debt. We've curtailed executive branch emergency powers, prohibited vaccine passports. Deregulated homestead food operations. Reduced licensing barriers for healthcare professionals. Uh, we've prohibited state funds from being used for abortion. Uh, now, whatever you think about abortion rights, um, I think people shouldn't be forced to fund something that they regard as murder. So we've done that. Uh, we've repealed four occupational licenses, as I mentioned, and we've set up a first-in-the-nation housing appeals board and a dedicated land-use docket in the court system so that landowners can get expedited, low-cost judgments when local governments violate their property rights. We're well on our way to liberty in our lifetime. As you can see all around you at this festival, it actually is possible to live free in New Hampshire right now, uh, depending on what you want to do and what kind of support network you put together. And I think that's one of the great things about Porkfest is we get a taste of that, of what Liberty in Your Lifetime is, is like. But we're not in this just for our own freedom. We want freedom for all. That's the reason why we're building right here the biggest liberty community that the world has ever seen. Now, in the world out there, <laughs> politicians and special interests get away with all kinds of skullduggery. Uh, backroom schemes that limit competition, prevent choice, squash innovation, punish entrepreneurship, close off opportunities. Larding up budgets with delectable little goodies for every little lobbyist boy and girl, with no care at all for mounting debt, inflation, and the liabilities that we will have to pay for in our old age and our kids in their working years. Politicians benefit, bureaucrats benefit, incumbent big companies benefit, and the people lose. Our future loses. That is the endless cycle of politics repeated everywhere and for all time. Thomas Jefferson wrote that the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. 
Economist Robert Higgs called it the ratchet effect. He said that once the American people lost their spirit of self-reliance, their native libertarianism, sometime in the early 1900s, the door was open for government to take advantage of any crisis that might present itself. War, depression, pandemic. Every time government got bigger, the free parts of our economy got smaller, and once the crisis was over, government never went back to its former size. It just ratcheted up and up, and freedom ratcheted down and down. In 1900, there was no IRS, FDA, USDA, SEC, FDIC, DEA, ATF, FBI, CIA, OSHA, HUD, HHS, ICE, DOE, or DHS. And no Federal Reserve. <laughs> the American economy was the strongest in the world. Population was exploding. Technology was advancing rapidly. Prices were actually falling as often as they rose. People were working shorter hours. Dangerous child labor was getting rarer. People were eating more and getting taller. Medicine was improving. Lifespans were extending. Yes, separate but equal had just been enshrined by the Supreme Court and the shroud of Jim Crow was falling over much of the country. The US government mistreated American Indians, often by insisting on collectivist political structures for them uh, to this very day. State banking laws made us vulnerable to financial panics. And in my view, um, the common law system didn't do enough to protect us from air and water pollution, and we needed uh, statutes to protect our rights to bodily integrity. But there's no reason that we needed the vast tentacles of new federal and state bureaucracies that now harass our people and eat out their substance, in the words of America's now politically inconvenient Declaration of Independence. For the people of freedom, therefore, losing is boring, normal, predictable. Most Americans don't even realize what they've lost. They've never thought about it, but they've lost all the same. So what's the solution? Give up? I mean, maybe. <laughs> if, if losing is inevitable, then why fight back? It's just a waste of effort. Fighting back would be actually insane. Unless there's a strategy that does work. What if you could get a critical mass of the population that cared enough about freedom to keep tabs on the people in power, to hold them accountable, to run for office themselves, to write legislation, to educate the public about what government has taken from them and what they could win back? How many would you need? The American revolutionaries at the start were no more than 10% of the population, and the leadership, well less than 1%. I mean, you could try to force feed Milton Friedman and Murray Rothbard to two million Americans, and <laughs> if you could do that, maybe you could change the country, but that's a fantasy, right? If you're wealthy and speak German, maybe you could move to Liechtenstein. I hear, I, I hear they're uh, pretty free. Um, I've heard that idea bandied about, but Liechtenstein isn't going to change the world. It's not even going to be able to stand up to the U.S. government, whose reach is global. Or, you could just gather the people of freedom in their true home, New Hampshire, 
where seven or 8,000 dedicated, rational, hardworking, bridge-building leaders could, in fact, change the world. Not by each going our own way, preaching a lonely gospel to the converted, but by going out there, listening more than speaking, learning, finding opportunities, collaborating, building a majority issue by issue. We're virtually there, and you're welcome to join us if you haven't yet. There's no longer anything that you have to sign up for. We'd like to send you the newsletter so that you can stay apprised of what's going on. And I say we because I've recently rejoined uh, the board of the Free State Project and looking to... Uh, Looking forward to this next phase, where it's really more about quality than quantity, right? We need those, those dedicated, humble leaders, like the people who make Porkfest happen, the people who make the NHLA happen, um, some of you in the audience who I see who serve in town or uh, state government. We need those kinds of servant leaders who are willing to, uh, to put themselves out there and help out, help others out with successful projects rather than having to be the, uh, the chieftain of your own little project, right? And, and it's wonderful that we have so many people who are willing to do that uh, here in New Hampshire. If you want to send the FSP a few bucks so that we can continue our mission to educate New Hampshire and the broader world about the benefits of living free in New Hampshire, um, those gifts are welcome and powerful. But there's no hierarchy here other than that of reputation and talent. No one is going to tell you what to do when you get here until you ask where help is needed. Some of us like to call ourselves free staters, some don't. The choice is up to you. My vision for a New Hampshire freedom movement that is neighborly productive, is, is for one that is neighborly productive, tolerant, and effective. I'm impatient to secure real, durable wins for liberty, aren't you? A famous Norwegian poem says that in 100 years, everything is forgotten. And I'm not going to make predictions about 100 years from now. <laughs> uh, but what is within our reach fantastically, improbably, and wonderfully, is a free society for ourselves, our children, and even if we do our job well, our children's children. So look around the room. We are the people of freedom, and we've finally found our forever home. Thank you. I welcome any questions. Come on up to the mic. That was fast. We got 30 minutes here. <laughs> yeah. Come on up to the mic so everyone can hear. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've been, a, I've been a close observer of the free cities movements, because there are many of them, uh, since you know, the early aughts, and went to a conference in Honduras uh, that they, you know, they were going to 
create this legal framework for free cities. I think the, the problem with free cities, and this is what they've discovered in Honduras, is that they exist at the sufferance of the central government. They could repeal that law at any time, wipe away all the autonomy and everything that they've accomplished, and that's exactly what Honduras did. Um, you know, going to poor authoritarian countries to get a, a free cities project, I understand the logic there that maybe they're, you know, you don't have to pay a lot to get a lot because they're desperate, but they're, these are also not stable regimes, right? These are places that often have a history of Marxist revolutionaries, right? And, and a lot of populism. And guess what? You know, a bunch of white, weirdo Americans coming in to, uh, to, to run out their political fantasy is not very popular among, in, in the third world, and, and uh, that's an easy target for populist politicians. So I, I hope free cities succeed, but what is especially useful about a free state is that we have constitutionally entrenched sovereignty. And yeah, courts have, have chipped away at that, um, but at the same time, the federal government is weakening. I mean, look at the, the, the debts and deficits they're running. They're going to have to cut back on enforcement budgets over time. They can't enforce marijuana laws. We've discovered that. Um, how soon will it be before they can't, can't enforce securities regulation? How, how soon will it be before they can't, you know, enforce um, gun laws? Right? So these are things where states, I think, have an opportunity to gain even more autonomy in the future. So I think that's, that's the, uh, the big advantage, of course. The problem is we have to put in the effort and be willing to have strategic patience because politics is tough and there'll be setbacks. But if we keep plugging away 10, 20 years from now, the changes are going to be wonderful as we've seen. Tuan. Oh, maybe it's not on. Yeah, it's not on, I guess. Is it? Is there? Is the switch? Uh, there we go. Ah, okay. Um, what do you think of the idea of, of picking a county in New Hampshire and, um, and making that the freest county in, in the world? Well, so counties in New Hampshire have very little authority. So um, what you could do is, uh, is a free town project. <laughs> And, uh, and some people have tried this, and uh, and if you uh, and again, I'm gonna uh, call out uh, John and Rosalie Babiars in the back, who could who could talk to you a little bit about that if you'd like to. Um, and I think town government is really important in New Hampshire, so uh, I, I think it's an, an incredible place to get involved. Two thirds of our tax burden in New Hampshire is at the town level, uh, so it's one of the secret advantages of New Hampshire actually that it's so decentralized. I mean, state government does this much, and local government does this much, at least fiscally. Um, so think about education spending. I mean, that's, that's going to be the majority of your tax burden. If you move here, the majority of your tax burden is schools. Okay, so if you get involved, you can make a change. In other states, school funding is largely controlled by the state government. Um, and we don't have that here. So there's a real opportunity to make a difference, reduce your property tax burden significantly, there's a real opportunity to make a significant difference with land use regulation and reduce the cost of housing. Um, so I think that is up to you to investigate places that are, um, you know, amenable to you in various ways. There's a lot of data out there. Uh, I produce some of it, spreadsheets you can download with all the town data on their politics and their economics and things like that. Um, so I think that's up to individual people. 
I think it, it does make more sense to live in a place where you can win. I mean, there are a few, a few sort of little statist hellholes in, in New Hampshire. <laughs> and, you know, if you move there, you're not going to make much of a difference in your local uh, government. But, um, but you, you may be able to in, in other places. Yeah. You, you could even cut your school taxes in half. <laughs> but, but in regard uh, to not what you said in reply to him, but what you said in reply to the, that fellow over there, the weakness of the federal government. Mm -hmm. What cannot go on will not go on. They're running out of money. Yeah. So they're going to no, have to stop. Yeah, that, no, that's absolutely right. And that's not, you know, it's not going to be a fun time. It's not going to be fun times for us. They're going to try to raise taxes. They're going to try to inflate away the debt. But um, it does present opportunities. Uh, it's well known that the children of immigrants have different social habits and voting patterns from their parents. Yeah. So in a free state project where you're encouraging people to move here to change things in legislatively, how do you ensure that those changes last for more than a generation? Yeah. I am heartened by the fact that there is this culture of liberty in New Hampshire that goes back uh, nearly 300 years. Uh, so I, I do think we can pass that on to the next generation. Um, it also means that what we've achieved with school choice has been really good. Uh, so it, may, it makes homeschooling easier, it makes private schooling easier. Um, so getting your kids out of government schools or monitoring what, you know, I understand if you have to send them to government schools that, um, you know, uh, different families of different situations, but monitoring what they're being exposed to and giving them alternative resources, bringing them to Porkfest, right, where there's a, there's a community here that, that has that liberty orientation where they can learn that liberty and responsibility go together. I think modeling by example, um, you know, I, I think that will pass those values down to the next generation, perhaps in somewhat attenuated form, but perhaps in, in enlarged form as more reform at the state level causes a stronger economy and, and provides an example of how our ideas work. Hey, Jason. Brian Henry, Merrimack, New Hampshire. I've been here for 10 years now. Um, and I'm looking for jobs, so I'm going to have to talk to your friend uh, that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> Um, so my question for you is, um, I actually want to run for office one day here in New Hampshire, and I was wondering if you, Jason, have considered running for governor of New Hampshire. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. So the most important thing here is hire Brian, uh, good guy, um, uh, let's look him up on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't run for governor, so what I just, I did run for town office, and that was an adventure, and, and I could talk about that sometime. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one person that everyone knows is a free stater, and like instantly, it's uh, they're triggered. <laughs> you should have seen how the town Facebook group just blew up, like hundreds and hundreds of comments about my candidacy and how I was, uh, you know, Manchurian candidate, a stalking horse for who knows what. Um, lots of things came up that had nothing to do with my town or anything that I was involved in. Uh, and I, but I did make allies, and it was, an, uh, on balance, uh, I think, a good experience. Olga may disagree with my wife. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we had, yeah, we had people calling, calling our jobs and things like that, trying to get us fired, um, all sorts of weird, weird stuff. But, um, but I did meet a lot, of, a lot of interesting people who supported me. Most of them were not libertarians. 
but they liked my ideas, and, um, and I got a lot more votes than I thought I would. I got 21% in a three-way three race. So I think there is a model there of reaching out, of not being just in your kind of libertarian enclave, but reaching out and making alliances with people that you may disagree with on 75% of the issues, but for the race that you're running for, you, you do agree on. I'd be interested in your thoughts on secession and the thoughts of if it came to that, what are our chances of getting out of it with, without violence? I think you've done some work on looking at other seceding. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I've talked a lot about this and I used to do a lot of research on secession and, and the conclusion of my research was that governments should allow it and in particular in the US context where a country formed out of secession, New Hampshire's constitution protects the right of secession extremely explicitly um, so secession, even unilateral secession, should be lawful, um, and it could potentially, having that tool there could be a, um, a way of ensuring that a, a, a country uh, becomes or remains decentralized, right, that states can maintain their powers. I'm, I'm also very much on record as saying I would not, you know, vote yes uh, on, a, on a constitutional amendment or whatever, or a bill to, um, to make us independent. I look at the transition costs of even things like Brexit, and I think, you know, there, there are unintended potential consequences of, of making that sharp break all of a sudden. And I also think using that term secession with, uh, with muggles, so to speak, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, alienates them. I think we can talk about autonomy and self-government and things like that, and, and that can be open-ended, right? So we definitely do want more powers from the federal government. Let's start getting back those powers, and if we end up with something like independence, who knows how long since, uh, you know, from now, because it just makes sense, then so be it, right? Um, but let's, let's really try to work on the low-hanging fruit right now. I guess that's, that's what I would say about it. But I definitely, if it does happen, it should be peaceful, right? People should not be forced to submit to a government against their will. My name's Brian. Um, I was gonna ask this, but you broached the subject anyway. I'm sure everyone else in this room has had people say, oh, you're one of those free staters, as if it's some sort of a disparagement. And to me, that's rooted in ignorance. Funny I should have chosen to wear this shirt today. Uh, but how do, you, how do you approach that? How do you address that with the, the as, as they put it in Blazing Saddles, the common folk? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I mentioned listening more than speaking. I think if you're the person who goes in kind of humbly, not like, I have all the answers here, you know, Rothbard, boom, on the table, done. Mic drop, you know, <laughs> vote for me or whatever. Abolish the government. Um, that's not gonna work so well, but if you, uh, if you really volunteer in town, you help out with projects, you're clearly interested in making your town and the state a better place, you'll make allies. And you can own that free stater label if you want, I understand why people don't adopt that label. You don't have to, right? There's nothing, <laughs> you're not lying if you say I'm not, I'm, there's no definition of a free stater. Right? It's just a, a, a term that's out there that you can choose to affiliate with or not. Unfortunately, there's no great term for us, right? Libertarian, also not everyone would accept even that label, right? Classical liberal, a lot of people don't know what that is. It sounds too much like liberal. <laughs> um, so there's no great term for us. I've used the term people of freedom here. Uh, <laughs> 
So saying I'm a freedom guy, I'm in the liberty movement, you know, I, I think that's a, a way to go. But yeah, just be a, be a good citizen first and be the sort of person who actually is willing to change your mind if there's, you know, clearly something that comes up where, where someone um, presents good evidence and good arguments, you know, being that sort of uh, person who, who's not a, a know-it-all who's come in to fix all your problems, I think that's the, the way to go about it. I've encountered a similar thing with just plain being a libertarian. All these people say, well, I'd be a libertarian too, except you want to legalize drugs. <laughs> well, just because we want to legalize them doesn't mean we want everybody to do them. Well, yeah, that's can't exactly just draw right. that distinction. Yeah, so I, and I'm, I happen to be, I've written about this, uh, a virtue libertarian. So I believe liberty and responsibility go hand in hand, that you have a right to do things that are morally wrong which by definition means you shouldn't do them. Right? But you should be free to do them. We shouldn't throw you in jail for doing these things. And one example I use with my, with my college students um, is uh, you know, as an example of a moral obligation that should not be enforced ever, um, you know, coercively, is, and, and they identify with this being away at college, calling your mom from time to time, right? So you have a duty to call your mom from time to time, right? It would be wrong not to in a sense. But obviously, we shouldn't punish people for for uh, for not calling their mom. And in the same way, maybe we shouldn't punish people for possessing too much of a psychedelic or something like that, <laughs> even if that's probably not living their best life. Um, right? We can we can try to help them. We can reason with them, uh, but but force is ruled out. So I don't know. Yeah, you you know these this is these are not arguments you guys haven't heard before. These are the arguments I use with people, and sometimes they're persuaded, sometimes not. Most people prefer not to engage with that, the cognitive discomfort of, of a contradiction in their mentalities. Um, it's always fun when you see people who really are interested in ideas for their own sake and will engage with you in that debate, but not everyone will. And so on, the, on those occasions, it's more like, okay, well, that's fine. I mean, this is not something I'm working on right now. Here, here's what I am working on. Do you agree with me on this? Can we work together? Thank you. All right, any other questions? All right, thank you guys so much.